I'm happy to introduce tonight's moderator, uh, Mr. Eric Morris. Eric Morris hails from Deerfield, Illinois, and is currently a doctoral student in UCLA's Department of Urban Planning and a researcher at UCLA's Institute of Transportation Studies. He's also a recurrent guest writer for the New York Times Freakonomics blog, a regular contributor to transportation journals, and is working on a book on the history and financing of the freeway system. Previously, Mr. Morris was a child actor and a writer for television. His credits include episodes of JAG, Xena, and Star Trek Voyager. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Eric Morris. So I'm going to tell you guys a secret, but you have to promise not to tell any of my professors. Agree? Everyone promise? One of them's here, so the cat will be out of the bag. Um, about this time last year, I was studying for my doctoral qualifying exams. It's a big, scary set of exams involving lots of reading that go on for months and months. So I did what any good graduate student would do in that situation, which was start procrastinating. I went to Borders and was wandering around, and there I saw a book on the bookshelves called Traffic. And it had a nice-looking cover and had a lot of shelf space, and I figured, you know, not too many transportation books show up in Borders, so I'll take a look. Um, I read some, and I read some more, and I figured this will be the perfect crime. I will read this for my exam, my professors will think I'm studying structural equations modeling, but in reality, I'll be reading this very engaging, very readable book with lots of juicy tidbits about transportation, and I'll justify it in my mind that I'm doing it for exam study. And sure enough, uh, it did help me out a lot with my exam. The book is excellent. It's extremely well written. Um, Tom talked to all the right people. He did a ton of research, and he has a very sharp eye for picking out the most interesting parts of transportation and conveying them to you. So I'm thrilled to be meeting Tom tonight. Tom has written four different books. Uh, two of them are collections of his essays. One is a travel guide uh, to the atomic sites of America. And one is a book about sneakers, the history of athletic shoes. So he's done walking, he's done driving, and if he does mass transit, we'll have pretty much all the avenues of urban transportation covered in Tom's career. Um, he has written for many different publications, including Wired, Travel and Leisure, The Wall Street Journal, Rolling Stone, The New York Times Magazine. Um, he currently writes for Slate Magazine online and has his own blog called Transport, How We Get From Here to There. He's also appeared on many, many television shows, including the Today Show, Nightline, Morning Edition, the BBC, etc., etc. Please help me welcome Tom Vanderbilt. Okay, so Tom, first of all, let's talk about the theme for tonight's presentation. I think it's called, Is Traffic Curable? So let me ask you to put on your white doctor coat and pick up your black bag and tell us, first of all, is the patient sick? Is transportation a really severe problem and should we be very concerned about it? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I had to react, I had a sort of a visceral reaction when I got that email and said, is traffic curable? Because just, just that sort of word struck me, you know, is traffic curable? And it, it sort of struck speaks to a point about writing the book. And one of the most common questions I've got is, what made you want to write a book about traffic? And pe people tend to conflate instantly traffic with traffic congestion. I think we sort of make this con uh, conceptual leap and immediately think of something bad. And I, I have a Google alerts uh, in my inbox, and it's just set simply for traffic. So every day I get a flood of things that are about traffic. And a lot of these are about internet traffic, same store traffic. I mean, there's a lot of different variations of traffic, most of them viewed quite positively. Uh, then when it, it gets to the vehicular stuff, it's always in a negative uh, sort of fashion. There's too much traffic. Uh, what can we do about this traffic problem? You don't really hear about tr all, the, all the internet stuff is how can I drive more traffic to my websites? And this, you know, kind of got into the marketing of the book. How, you know, is this, actually go is this thing actually going to sell with this sort of title? And uh, which is why we had to tack on that extended subtitle. But it brings up, you know, interesting... The book is published in a number of other countries. In Germany, though, they went with the, the title Auto, and I thought this was an interesting discrepancy. And I said, you know, why did you, why did you go with traffic? And they said, well, uh, Tom, in German, the word traffic is actually synonymous with intercourse. And I, I spent about five Probably minutes... Probably would have sold more books that way. I but, spent about five right? minutes on the phone trying to convince the, you know, sort of um, editor this would actually sell more books. But, yeah, so, you know, I, it's just interesting to think, you know, traffic, it doesn't have to be congestion. One person driving down a street, one person walking down a street is traffic. And you know, this is one thing about transportation that interests me is a lot of the language. And I was recently with a planner talking about the word pedestrian and, and how this has even acquired a, a sort of strange 
connotation in my mind. If you're sort of out hiking in a mountain somewhere and you come across another person, you don't say, oh, there's, look, here comes another pedestrian. It's only within the context of transportation that we even think to deem this person as something that's not the automobile and not this. So anyway, it's just another interesting uh, kind of thing about language that I think is it, you know, always says something more than just the word itself. So I don't, you're asking me, a freelance writer from Brooklyn, if, if the traffic problem is curable in the world? Or? Well, I actually, I actually wanted to ask you what made you want to write a book about traffic next. Um, no, I'm just joking. Um, yeah, traffic as we traditionally consider it. Um, your answer is well taken. But vehicular traffic, uh, probably the way they phrase their question, implies traffic congestion. Um, um, do you see that as a problem? And is it curable? Are there measures, do you think, uh, that would... Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, technologically it's curable, and this gets to the, and, and, and sort of economically and socially with the right, the right programs, this gets to a, a quote I uh, used from the, the late Henry Barnes, traffic engineer of New York City, in my book, that as time went on, he thought the, how did he put it, the technical problems become more automatic, the people problems become more serialistic. I mean, we could you implement any number of, of schemes, congestion, charging, I mean, we're, we're getting, you know, that is a... A little bit, uh, you know, sort of a, a non-starter in Washington. It's up there with sort of, it's like the death panels of the uh, transportation <laughs> world, I think. But, um, you know, any of these things are possible tomorrow. In New York City, a few years ago, we had a transit strike. It required uh, you to have three plus HOV to enter the city in your car. I think uh, people can't do that. Of course, you know, people adapted in one day. People are amazingly flexible. If, if there's a, a new regime that says you have to have a carpool, people will do it to, you know, get to where they're going. So, I mean, there's any number of, of solutions per se. It's just, I, I guess the matter is overcoming the political hurdles and, you know. Uh. Talking about people adapting to driving, a big section of your book, which was really um, interesting, I thought, had to do with the sort of psychology of driving and the fact that human beings are essentially animals who are attempting to act like machines while we're driving. Three million years on the savanna taught us how to chase down antelope and um, exist in small sort of social groups. Yet there's lots and lots of ways in which human behavior sort of gums up the works when we're trying to be efficient driving machines. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about various physiological, cultural, social forces that go into our driving behavior. Yeah, I mean, this was one thing that interested me right away. I was sort of just, you know, thinking about this in, in terms that we've been walking for most of our evolutionary history. How do we even do something like drive? How are we out there moving at 75, 80 miles an hour? And, you know, some vision people explained to me, well, you know, you, the, the image is expanding on your retina as you're driving. It's a very sort of slow thing. It's not, you have this illusion when you're out driving. If you look at the other cars around you, they're actually, they don't seem to be moving at all. Of course, if you look down at the at the street, it would be an entirely different situation. And I always think of New York City pigeons in this regard, which is uh, sort of a strange thing, but it, you can drive quite close to them before they drive away. And I always think, are, are they just stupid? Or, well, and the real answer is yeah, they can see their, what they call the flicker fusion rate, I believe. They can see three times as fast as humans. Uh, they would, you know, so they know exactly where you are in relation to them. They can wait till the last minute uh, to pull away. And I think they would need to, to watch a film, pigeons would have to have it sped up three times to, to actually see motion. Sometimes looking at the product that comes out of Hollywood, I think pigeons are actually in these focus groups watching films. But um, <laughs> that's, so, I mean, that was one of the things. And, you know, there's, uh, you talk about what we lose in driving. So, you know, at the faster you go, obviously, you start to, it becomes a visually impoverished environment. You start to strip out peripheral information. But yet you were still absorbing major amounts of information. And I saw some interesting statistics that, on various surveys, uh, 1,300 pieces of information every mile. You're making 40 decisions, a couple of mistakes. And um, I was also fascinated in some of these other things we lose uh, that evolutionary, in evolutionary terms, we are quite well adapted to, such as our mechanisms for cooperation, which include eye contact, which seems like a very sort of banal thing. But it's been argued, you know, the reason we have so much white in our eyes is uh, so we can have a sort of a shared sense of intention, what I'm asking you to do, we, I can get you to look somewhere. This is all very uh, much harder if you can't see me. And um, going back to the work of Philip Zimbardo and these psychologists who you know, would put people in hoods and found that people were much more willing to administer electric shocks if they couldn't see them. So I thought Zimbardo's work was sort of interesting for traffic psychology because he talks about this process of de-individuation in which we be begin to not think of the other person as a person. And some of the factors he listed as uh, increasing the sense of de-individuation were things like altered temporal perspective, uh, sensual arousal, shared diffusion of responsibility. All, all those things sort of apply to the traffic world. And again, we're not looking at each other. And if I want to get you 
This is something I think we all experience out, out driving. If you're trying to get allowed into a traffic stream, you sort of need to make eye contact. And Jerry Seinfeld had a whole riff about this. He calls it, if you're getting the dreaded stare ahead, um, you know, you're not going to get this sense of cooperation. And, and Jay, uh, Jay Phelan, evolutionary biologist at UCLA, interesting discussion I had with him about, you know, that moment when we feel that warmth, it's very an odd thing. And he, he sort of, you can speculate maybe it's going back to this ancient lizard brain that, you know, I'm never going to see this person again. Why did this little mo mo um, moment of, um, of altruism out there on the highway feel so good? And was it, was it just some sort of trick that, you know, I loan you my spear, you, you can borrow my spear next, next week in the right. kind of small village of the prehistoric past, for example? Yeah, you're right that um, we're basically adapted to be in groups of about 100 in which you know, reputation is important and dishing out punishment for bad behavior is important. Um, and uh, in traffic, we're very much dealing with a, a very different situation. We still sort of respond in ways that, that harken back to our sort of hardwired sense of how to deal with the people around us. Yeah, like yelling at drivers who cut you off even though they can't hear you. Yeah, and I think rep reputation is very important. We, we lose that sort of gossip. People don't gossip about one another in traffic. I mean, you sort of yell at the person. And this, this leads to the question of, you know, these Lior Strahilovitz at the University of Chicago suggested we all have How's My Driving Style feedback stickers on the backs of our cars, and we could have sort of a massive uh, reputation management system out on the highway, which would be something like eBay. And, you know, how does eBay work? It, it doesn't work because, well, I mean, eBay has a few people working on crime, uh, but mostly it's the feedback system. You know, you, you know to trust that person because, uh, so you know, this is something we lack in traffic because we, we don't have these... Uh, repeated encounters, and you look at all these interesting social games where people are asked to share pots of money in one round, and well, what ensures cooperation in those games is usually having a, another round in the game in which someone can punish someone who didn't cooperate in the first round. So uh, again, all these mechanisms are, are somewhat lacking out there in the traffic world, which to me is why it can seem so hostile sometimes, and or maybe that's because I, I live in New York, I'm not sure. But, um, um. Very interesting. Let me stick for a second with the theme of uh, biology and transportation and travel behavior. Um, I'm going to give you a chance to Larry Summers yourself here into oblivion and ask you about men and women and travel behavior. One thing we've discovered in travel behavior is that when you're looking at different groups, um, sometimes group boundaries matter a lot and sometimes they don't matter very much. Um, African Americans and Latino Americans have very different travel patterns than white Americans, but most of that can be explained through income. And when you control for income, African Americans might ride the bus a little more and Latinos might carpool a little more. By and large, a lot of those differences go away. With men and women, there are very, very large differences between the groups, as you chronicle in your book. So um, I thought you might want to talk about A, driving style behavior between the two, and then um, you wrote very compellingly about differences in travel behavior uh, in our society. Sure. Well, I mean, just in terms of the, of the behavior, I think, you know, we all sort of recognize that, that men tend to create more of the trouble on the road, uh, statistically, statistically and in other ways, I think. I mean, even adjusted, they, they do drive more miles, but it seems like even adjusted for that extra exposure, they're still getting involved in more uh, f fatal crashes and all the sort of risk-taking behaviors, you know, not wearing a helmet, drinking, not wearing a helmet, drinking and riding a motorcycle all at the same time. I mean, these are all heavily stacked in favor of men. And there's some evidence, a study at Johns Hopkins found more minor crashes. Women may be over-involved in minor crashes, but, which then leads into this topic of, of travel behavior. And this was something I interviewed a, a person who studies travel demography, which was an entirely new field to me and something that the census takes a, a long look at. And, um, you know, so she analyzed, going back, she, if you sort of envision this ideal kind of Ozzie and Harriet leave it to Beaver commute in the 1950s. The father goes off to work, comes home in time for cocktails and Cronkite, and the, the wife has been home minding the children, maybe doing an errand or two, but I'm not sure. I, I don't know the exact number of women's workforce rates in the 50s, 25% uh, or something. Yeah. Uh, you know, now we're getting get to the point where it's just about even, and uh, so the miles, uh, commuting miles, are, are catching up to one another, almost just about even again, yet work place commuting is kind of an increasingly small part of the whole traffic picture, which is, was surprising to me, one, one of the many things, and uh, an increasingly sort of minor part of it, and, and all the other stuff that's making up our total kind of vehicle miles traveled, as they call it, are all these uh, various other uh, discretionary trips, taking the kids to school, uh, shopping, all that other stuff. And they found that, you know, even though that men and women were, were commuting in equal numbers, uh, men 
women were still doing a much larger percentage of these other sorts of trips. And as one person put it to me, you know, if you look at women's trip rates, they increase with each child. Uh, so they, they put on more miles with each child in the family, and they said if you look at men's rates, it looks like they don't even have a family. So, uh, you know, I know some people are going to argue that I, I take my kid to school every day, and, but just broadly speaking, it seems that... So I, I titled the chapter uh, Why Women Cause More uh, Congestion Than Men. Just, this is a provocative marketing thing that authors <laughs> need, to, need to do. It and works, it, but, so. but it, you know, the, the, this was actually said by someone at a, at a state highway conference and they were booed. Um, but it's just, you know, they're also suffering more from it. And this brings in interesting cases like the, uh, is it SR91 in Orange County, the HOT lane where you can pay more to avoid congestion. And you find that women are, are, are I think, the primary yeah. majority of users on that, uh, on that facility. They, they need to often get to daycare because they charge you more if you're running late. And of course, all these changes are, are swept up with a whole other host of changes in the American kind of travel landscape. I walked to school when I was a kid, uh, I think 60% plus did, and now it's down to 16%, I think. I was just in Houston, and coming from New York, this stuff is, is incredibly interesting and strange to me, but I, I passed by a school, it was about 2.30, it didn't let out till 3, and there was already a long queue of SUVs, sort of, and the person I was with called them the super moms, they were there early to sort of make, and you know, you can't release a kid now from school into the world without someone there to pick them up in many places, and there's been some stuff in the news about parents who've tried to have their kid ride a bike to school, and the, the, the school basically called the police on them and said, you know, or a child welfare agency. So, <laughs> number of interesting changes in the American travel landscape, let's say. Right. Uh, interesting statistics. I want, statistic I once heard, if I remember it correctly, is something like in 90% of the households that identify themselves as feminist households, the man does the driving when man and woman are in the car. So obviously, gender differences in transportation are still with us and still die very hard. Shifting to a different set of groups and different tra types of travel behavior, in the book you talk about driving in Delhi, where I've driven myself. In India, they don't need amusement parks because you can <laughs> ride a thrill ride every time you step out of your house onto the streets. Um, incredible collection of different types of vehicles, rickshaws, mopeds, you know, vans, buses, etc widespread disregard for traffic rules, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of cities around the world have this type of reputation. Um, and you wrote about um, um, the way that driving culture differs when you cross national boundaries. Um, talk a little bit about the kinds of things you found about how travel behavior differs from country to country. And maybe if you will speculate a little bit on what kinds of factors uh, play into different types of national driving styles. Sure. Um, well, when I first got to Delhi, you know, I talked to the taxi driver and I said, how do you cope with all this? And I thought I, thought I was getting this little pearl of wisdom that he had crafted himself. He said, good horn, good brakes, good luck. And I thought, I thought this was a great little thing. I'll put that on a t-shirt or something. And then, of course, everyone I've talked to now who's gone to Delhi has heard this exact same thing from their taxi driver. So I, I, somehow it's gotten around. Maybe it was on a TV show or something. So uh, I feel a little bit less special now. But um, yeah, and, uh, you know, as someone put it to me who works with, with traffic in Delhi, you know, we, we've begun living in, in discipline on the roads because we don't no longer feel it is in discipline. And it kind of brings up this idea that traffic, on the one hand, is it's an engineering system, but there's this whole other layer of, of culture. And I was on incredibly modern highways in, in, in China, I mean, much better than some of the stuff here currently. And you would see this very odd behavior, people stopping uh, in the median strip to basically use the bathroom. Um, you know, so this is sort of a national learning curve going on, which is reflected in the fatality rates, unfortunately. But um, you know, this is something you see in every place you go. And, and I was trying to, I'm still not sure whether it is culture or engineering, and you know, which kind of plays a stronger part. For example, I was, if any of you have been to Copenhagen, you'll notice that people very rigidly do not cross against the light uh, as a pedestrian. And this is the city, of course, of the largest anarchist commune in the world. And you know, they, these are law-abiding anarchists. And uh, <laughs> I, I was convinced it had something to do with the Scandinavian, you know, sort of Scandinavian sense of, of collective, you know, not wanting to stick your head above the community and, and sort of appear ostentatious by jaywalking, uh, which, you know, if you do there, you immediately stand out. And then I talked to an interesting uh, planner there named Jan Gale, who's, who's uh, pretty well known, and he insisted that it was really, really more about good, providing good uh, facilities for pedestrians, not making them wait very long. And there, there seems to be an iron law in, in traffic that you know, the longer the don't walk signal is, the more jaywalking you're going to induce. So 
you know, I feel like in each place it's, it's kind of, you know, and these are different layers and, and kind of disentangling the layers, but a lot of it is, is social norms and how do those take place and how do you change those norms? And I mean, that, that's sort of at the heart of a lot of these safety and culture issues, I think. Yeah, well, I yeah. think that the argument that culture plays a large role independent of engineering has to do with the fact that I'm sure you've discovered as you've schlepped around doing all of these um, programs, which is driving culture within the United States, I think, differs very much from city to city. You get something very different in New York than you would get in Los Angeles or Houston or so. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm always struck by the lack of honking I, I find in Los Angeles and New York City. I think there's an east-west continuum here, and it might have to do with density, and, and I think people have done time studies, geography of time, this book, and I mean, New York had the most time pressure of any city in the United States, so it's not surprising that when the light turns green, the shortest amount of recorded time in you know, scientific terms is the moment the person behind you honks. This is a traffic engineering joke, I was told by the DOT. Um, so yeah, and uh, there's all sorts of regional variations. I mean, would people talk about things like the Pittsburgh left, which is when you can take a, the light turns green, there's not a, there's not a turn arrow, but you can take a left across the oncoming stream of traffic before they've begun to accelerate. And this is <laughs> sort of a shared social norm that, you know, and these, People talk about you know these one-lane bridges in Ithaca where only one there's a shared social norm of who goes first and these things hold for a while but then you start to get a lot of mobility and new people moving in and I was told in, in Portland and places like that in Seattle that you know the California drivers had come up and started to contaminate the right. um, <laughs> because I have to say I find that I find the driving here incredibly I find it well mannered for the most part but but very fast and as a New Yorker you know going I think that's fair. Going down something like Sunset, out where it begins to curve, I, I'm constantly being, you know, sort of passed on, on the, on, you know, so. Well, when we get I, a chance to go fast, we take the opportunity, because it certainly doesn't And I think there's something about enough. being in the car so much. I mean, New York, it's sort of a novelty. You get in, and maybe you have a temporary thing, like, what am I doing in this strange thing? But here, it's just so much more of a fact of life. Maybe you're just more adapted to it or something. Which, which indeed, I, just last point on that, you know, they actually found, studying these inductor loops over time, that the headways, the amount of time between vehicles has actually shrunk over the last two decades in California, and I don't, you can argue, well, maybe it's people have better cars, better brakes, better acceleration, or, you know, are, are we seeing this sped up adaptive behavior where people are actually evolving on the road as we speak to be able to drive closer to one another? It's, it's a thought. Huh, interesting. All right, I'm going to ask, you don't have to answer if you don't want, but why did you write the book? <laughs> Uh, very simply, it's described in the first chapter. I just had a moment on a New Jersey highway involving a merge situation. And this is, you know, something that seems like a simple human problem, getting two lanes of traffic to merge into one. At a, but as I found out, it, it, just doing a little, bit of cursory research, I, I was struck by the, the sort of depth of the amount of work that went on to solve what I thought were simple problems. That, and it, it began to occur to me that I had taken this entire environment for granted that was around me, and, and I just sort of moved through it without thinking much about it. And, uh, and you know, you write for Freakonomics. I, I wasn't thinking of this necessarily ahead of time, but in retrospect, I, I had read that book and read other books and began to think that transportation, you know, was incredibly interesting, yet perhaps hadn't gotten, some of these messages hadn't gone out, some of these stories hadn't gotten out, and, and you know, you know perhaps a popular way or a compelling way. And uh, so in some ways I was trying to do a, uh, as someone put it, a, a frico-portation, um, but I haven't sold as many as that, so. <laughs> <laughs> in all of your research for the book, what surprised you the most? I, you know, I think just some of the complexity of these issues. I, I think, you know, engineers like to joke that anyone with a driver's license assumes themselves to be a traffic expert, uh, traffic engineer. Um, and you start to look into these issues and you find that any, anything has not only an immense number of variables that go into it, but all sorts of unintended consequences that are possible. And I think the, the transportation scholar, uh, Melvin Weber, I'm going to butcher this, but he's had some line about, you know, anytime you hear a simple answer, you know, it's probably wrong. Uh, you, you sort of have to peel back the layers of complexity. And this applies, I think, to traffic solutions, you know, uh, as well as congestion itself, sort of studying these patterns. And uh, so I, I think just, again, I, I, I'm thinking of trying a better way to articulate it, but just the complexity involved. And uh, I mean, this is something that encompasses f potentially physics, psychology, uh, you, you name it, it runs the, it's a really cross-disciplinary sort of field that 
and again, it's not just a simple matter of installing lights and doing this and that. And I mean, there's an immense, you know, sorts of human factors work that goes on in here. And um, again, just I was, I was trying to just make it wake, awaken people to the this complexity in a way of the world and, and, and turn them into sort of amateur traffic anthropologists and, and try to you know, look out for the stuff as you're yeah, going you around. do a very good job. The book explains things super well. Um, has Writing the book changed your own personal travel, your own driving, the way that you see traffic or try to navigate it, or yeah, I mean, I you know, I I live in New York, of course, so I, I have a I sort of call it a divorced dad relationship with my car. I see it mostly on the weekends only, and I spend a lot of time parking. And you know, my thought of driving safety can I think be best exemplified by the scene in uh, is it Annie Hall when. Uh, Christopher Walken has told uh, Woody Allen that he sometimes envisions driving into the headlights of oncoming vehicles at night, and then you cut to the next scene, and he's being driven to the airport by Christopher Walken, and Woody Allen is, looks absolutely terrified. So I, I definitely yeah. have always been a somewhat, you know, sort of cautious driver. Doing the work in this book, and especially some of the perceptual and cognitive limitation stuff, and this was trying to branch out into the work of people like Daniel Simons, who, with their famous, now famous, sort of change blindness studies, and just awakening us to the what thinks like a sim, uh, what seems like a simple thing the world is out there you see the world this this is reality yet that is so often not the case and then to transfer that to the automotive environment where you're moving at these high speeds with complex right. environments just really put that much more neuroses uh, what, what about <laughs> what about what about late merging do i remember correctly that uh the book turned you into a late merger, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was really using that more metaphorically, and I found that people have, people have, well, people have misapplied this to all sorts of situations, including, you know, exiting at an off-ramp, cutting to the head of a queue at an exit at an off-ramp in an active traffic lane, which is not only dangerous, but just sort of rude. But it just struck me that when you have a two-to-one merge at something like a construction zone, why do we all form an early artificial kind of very long queue, leaving all this empty space in the neighboring lane, which could be, because there's a safety issue here, the longer that queue goes back at the bottleneck, uh, it may go past the signs even warning you that there's going to be construction, and this is one of the most dangerous things you can encounter, because we don't expect vehicles to be absolutely stopped on the highway and you sort of come racing along. So there, there's a safety issue here, and it, it is some, it, it's, it's a minor thing in the, the scheme of human affairs. Um, work zone merging efficiency, but <laughs> one study found a new system could improve throughput by 15%. So this, you know, this is a point about urban congestion in a lot of cases. We're right at that tipping point, and something like a 15% improvement in these systems really could, uh, you know, sort of be the difference between a relatively good commute or a nightmare. And I, I think as Rand uh, Corporation has pointed out in a study, you know, this is a nonlinear phenomenon. We don't have to cut to cut congestion by 50%, we don't have to cut the number of people traveling by 50%. We can cut it perhaps by, by 20%. It's, you know, little, small improvements the can extra produce. The cars, yeah, at the end of the in congestion produce a lot. Um, okay, we're going to take a little poll here. Who used their cell phone in their car on the way here? Come on, more of you used it. I know you did. Raise your hands. Uh, eating? A couple people ate. Uh, fiddled with radio? A lot of people. <laughs> I'll tell you what my problem was. I think we should ban driving with bow ties on because I couldn't stop fiddling with it as I was trying to drive, and I had a couple of close calls. So, Tom, talk a little bit about safety. What do we do that makes us so dangerous on the roads? Um, what are the biggest threats? How can we make ourselves safer? Um, and do you have any ideas for remedies or ways that we could make driving safer? Yeah, I mean, in terms of, of safety, I mean, really, this is sort of the classic issues, you know, belts, booze. Um, I mean, these are sort of the major issues. Right, I mean, right. th th those are still account for the majority of fatalities, and, and, and speed is also implicated in a lot of these. Uh, but on the distraction question, I mean, this is something that interests me quite a bit. I mean, you go back to the 1930s, 40s, there was a lot of concern about putting that radio in the car. Would, you know, would it be an immense distraction? Would we be able to handle it? The radio industry lobbied in favor of this, of course. And so it brings us to this interesting philosophical point in which driving becomes such an automatic, well-practiced behavior that it doesn't uh, who is it? Is it Herbert Simon that talks about satisficing? You know, we, we have this thing. We, we don't try to drive like ideal drivers most of the time. I recently had a, a baby uh, daughter, and if anyone's ever dro driven home from the hospital with an infant, I mean, you are 
this is the most intense driving of your life. You are <laughs> alert to every last hazard. You're, you're, you're erect. You're going you know, below the speed limit. Uh, you know, we don't drive like that the rest of the time, and nor does our attention stay rigidly locked 100% on the road. There's always some extra capacity out there. So where is that going to go, and how are we going to control that? And I'm not equating the radio with the cell phone, nor particularly texting, but it's just, again, it's an evolving uh, question, and uh, it's absolutely clear in my mind that texting is a hazard, and, and there's already forces lining up uh, working toward a ban, and these are forces, the wireless carrier industry, that stand to lose a lot of money in every, what's a text message, I mean, it depends on your plan, but this is 20 cents a message times, you know, so if these people are behind it, you know, who's not getting the message out there? And I, I've heard comments from younger drivers, you know, well, I can do it behind my back, I can text behind my back, and it's still, it's not about the manual thing at all, necessarily, it's, that's part of it, but it's also that mental engagement with the road, and we've already, the studies are, are quite clear on this. Uh, cell phones are a little bit of a more complex issue that, you know, some of the simulator work seems to show a larger hazard than the on-road stuff, but again, this is such a new field, and, and this is a really, Again, something that we, we've never really seen the inside of the car from the driver's... We, we haven't seen how the driver behaves from the inside of the car until very recently. I mean, you used to have to put someone in there, which throws off the experiment, of course, and now with technology we can really track these things, so there's going to be an immense amounts of data. And I, I think, you know, we spent a lot of the 50s, 60s, and 70s working on things like crash protection, all, all, the, all the crash test dummies, but now I think we're getting into that kind of working on the mental problems, and we're having access now to this immense rich pool of, of driver behavior that was pretty, pretty much pretty invisible and, you know, we, we didn't know much about. How could you uh, tabulate something like a near crash? I mean, who would be there to, to record it? How would we know how the driver reacted? Did the driver even see it? Did the driver remember it the next week? So again, I think it's just opening up a whole new sort of new dimension to the whole study of driving. Right, right. Um, dimension of study of driving I thought was amusing in the book. It's a small point. Um, honking. You had a very interesting thing about who honks at who, who gets honked at the most, who's more tempted to lay on the horn. What was people in nicer cars get honked yeah. at? Go ahead. <laughs> this was new to me also, but applied psychologists lo love, you know, how do you find a real set sitting uh, situation in the outside world that, you know, has a kind of nice setup for this sort of thing, and it's a traffic light. You put your car at a light, wait till it turns green, and then don't move that car wait to see who's behind there, you have a clipboard, a stopwatch, mm -hmm. measure it, and these are not, measure how long, how quickly they honk, how long, how many times they honk, how long each honk is, because honks, let's say, can be different, different types of honks, and the patterns are quite clear on this, men honk more quickly than women and more aggressively, uh, men and women both honk more at women than men, um, <laughs> people in convertibles honk more quickly when the top is down than when their top is up, People in expensive cars more quickly than those in uh, cheaper cars. When the person ahead appears to be on a cell phone, the honk is more aggressive. And when the person ahead appeared to be from another country, this was a European study when they used to have the little uh, country ID plates. And the last point was when the person uh, ahead had a, a uh, student driver uh, <laughs> plaque on their car, they got a very quick horn. So <laughs> it's uh, unsurprising. Um, so you talked to a lot of people for this book. Um, some of them are in the audience, I know. Um, who are the more interesting scholars that you talked to who really you thought had something mind-blowing to say? Especially Donald Shoup. You're in Shoup country right now, so be sure to mention him prominently. <laughs> but if there's any other <laughs> scholars that you like to, you're, you feel free to mention them as well. No, even if I weren't here, I would mention uh, Donald Shoup because I think this, you know, you ask how can you write a 300-page book about traffic? I mean, how can you write a 700-page book about parking and have it be absolutely compelling? And you know, uh, and I felt like you know, reading that book was it was for a complete civilian and an outsider it was a little bit like I guess the scene in the Matrix where you, you sort of take the red pill or the, is it the blue pill? I don't know. And you're sort of this whole world is sort of exposed to you that was previously right in front of you, but you you weren't really aware of, and, and a reality has been shown to you that you weren't not a, that you weren't aware of. Uh, which is, you know, the, the sheer volume of vehicles on a given urban street that are simply out there looking for parking. And this is sort of one of these hidden sources of, of traffic that I found quite interesting. And some other studies have looked at things like how many people are simply lost, uh, and this is something that <laughs> the real time, you know, GPS systems seem to have their uh, benefit here in terms of actually reducing uh, vehicle miles, at least mm -hmm. the makers of these devices say they do. I don't know if those are peer-reviewed studies, mm -hmm. but... Um, so yeah, so that, that would be obvious, you know, one, and then again, looking at ways how we, that we, we could fix this, some of the structural reasons behind the whole free parking uh, dilemma. 
Another, on a kind of a different front, was a guy named Hans uh, Monderman, who's, who's become in some ways the most famous traffic engineer in the world until his uh, death in January, his un untimely death. Uh, you know, it, be it became, and CBS News last week, I think, just did yet another story about this roundabout in Drochten in the northern Netherlands, in Friesland, that uh, the signs were taken away, and, you know, sort of this is treated as, well, I mean, the first point is that it was a four-way signalized intersection, your standard intersection, and there was a, a safety problem, there was a congestion problem. So he said, well, what can we do? The first thing, let's replace it with a roundabout. And this is another thing that was news to me when I began the book, but, you know, roundabouts, for a number of reasons, are safer than standard intersections, and they happen to move more traffic under the right conditions. So then he thought, well, this is really the, the town's center plaza here, in a way, de facto plaza. How can we make this look like a, just a nicer urban place, make it not look like a traffic environment? So... And this was a place filled with, you know, sort of pedestrian barricades, zebra-striped, you know, poles. It looked like, you know, sort of some sort of heavy piece of infrastructure. So let's start taking this stuff away, he thought. And, and this was done against the official uh, advice of, of the local planners and the uh, traffic engineers. And lo and behold, you know, six years later going on, uh, the, the traffic safety rate has continued to improve. The congestion has not been... Uh, has not increased buses and, and cars are going through this. This is the Netherlands, so there's a lot of bikes, a lot of pedestrians, and it's a fascinating place to just stand and watch this mm -hmm. behavior unfold. In a... So Hans, you know, just this simple idea, and it's now spreading to uh, London, I mean, it's spreading to all sorts of places, uh, Sweden, but London is about to experiment with this in a big way. And, you know, is this, going, is this the end-all be-all of, of traffic engineering? Probably not, but it just, you know, he was, he was bringing a new kind of thought to it. Instead of just applying the same old things out of the rule book, which is, tends to happen in a lot of these situations. And, and he wouldn't advise doing this at every intersection. This is a very particular, people sometimes say, well, he's just removing everything, it's going to be anarchy. And he's, you know, uh, he's not talking about removing signs on, on the high-speed highways, for example. This is, but once you start to look at your local neighborhood and, and you see things like center lines down your street, and if you have a street that's meant to be driven at 25 miles an hour, there's absolutely no reason there should be center lines on that street. It's not, the presence of those lines simply encourages vehicles to drive faster, and in England, when they've done studies taking away the center line, uh, vehicles actually drove further apart from one another. So if you're worried about a head-on collision, removing the line actually proved to be safer, and it also made people drive slower. So he, you know, and, and just to conclude, I mean, Hans was, you know, just not just a traffic engineer, he really sort of was thought w widely on a lot of subjects, and we had all sorts of interesting conversations about, uh, you know, uh, he thought Delta societies like the Netherlands sort of uh, bred more innovation because they're always having to adapt to these changing conditions with the potential water. And, and it's a very interesting guy who, for a provincial uh, traffic engineer, thought much more broadly than I tend to find. Do you so. think we've made a mistake in sort of our transportation engineering culture in terms of engineering for safety? It sort of feeds in with what you just discussed that um, you, you've, you wrote in the book a little bit about sort of perverse incentives that can result from increased safety devices. Yeah, I mean, there's, I like this guy, this guy Brian Wanzik at Cornell. So he studies food, actually, but you know, he studies food packet, the food in the packages it's served in. And he finds, even among nutrition experts, people will actually eat more when it's served in a larger package. It's just a, a sort of bias we have. We, we can't help ourselves. And uh, he calls it portion distortion. And I think there's something similar that happens on, on the American road in particular, which tend to be quite wide. I was just in Houston, the, uh, it's about a 100-foot wide average street there, uh, much wider than the average American city. So the wider a road is, uh, the faster people tend to drive. So, you know, why are they wide? These are often made wide for safety reasons. And there were these principles of the forgiving road, which, which are quite good in high-speed environments, but some of those principles were tried to be brought into more suburban, residential, urban environments. So e even one person even arguing we should have at least 100-foot clear zones on either side of the road in a residential neighborhood and remove trees from the side of the road. And, and my point of view is, you know, often in these types of environments, the trees are, are not the hazard. They're actually the safety device. I mean, the presence of those trees, you know, compresses the, the view, makes you aware of that you're not just in sort of an anonymous highway environment. So it, it's, you know, this has to be done sensitively. Again, it's not arguing that you can just sort of make things, take signs out anywhere. And, but it, it, the point is that it's often not been done sensitively. And, and there's interesting examples, which I won't go into too much. But uh, yeah, so. Um, <laughs> you, you talked earlier when you were talking about the Dutch experiment about sort of the relation between cars, pedestrians, um, and the street, and who controls it. I'm reading a book right now that seems to be quite, I just started, it seems quite interesting about 
the 1920s when, you know, the car took control of the street, according to the author, in the American city. Prior to that, it was a multi-use space shared by pedestrians and all sorts of other traffic. And um, Just in general, do you feel that we've moved too far towards accommodating automobile transportation? And um, are, are you one of the people who, I would say, okay, roughly, this is a false dichotomy, but just to try to be provocative, I would say that roughly there are two schools when it comes to um, uh, attitudes with the automobile. There's the people who want to replace it, who want to get us into transit and walking and tame the car as you know much as we can. And then there are people who say the car is with us to stay and it has its benefits, it gets us there fast and it's part of our prosperity and what we really need to do is, is look for ways to accommodate the automobile. Do you want to talk for a second about which so, uh, I hate to say which side you're on, but which ideas from each camp you find appealing and how you think that balance of power should be uh, measured? Yeah, I mean, well, obviously I'm a New Yorker, so I have a somewhat skewed perspective in that, you know, the car is a wonderful thing for point-to-point -point transportation, especially once the, uh, the sort of, you know, environmental aspects of it are improved, and that's going to bring a whole host of new issues with congestion uh, once we've eliminated some of these resource uh, limits. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a matter of, you know, too much of a good thing tends to, it's a tragedy of the commons issue. I mean, if, I recently saw someone made a, a little formulation of this. If everyone who lived in New York drove into work, the Brooklyn Bridge would have to be 270-odd lanes wide. So, I mean, I mean, New York just couldn't accommodate everyone's wish to drive in. So we can talk about, you know, it's America, we should respect freedoms, but it's simply not feasible for everyone to drive into work. So the, the whole point here is that, you know, I, I own a car in New York, so I'm not clearly not anti-car, but I, I just feel like, unlike other places in the world, it's it's morphed from becoming a, a being a transportation tool to essentially a life support system where you know you can't get a quart of milk without burning the quart of gas. To use kind of an old cliche, but uh, Netherlands, for example, we, we think it's a bike mad country, right? And and it sort of is. It's 37%, I think, in Amsterdam cycle share, but incredibly high car ownership rates in the Netherlands and a lot of miles put on, but it's, th there's choices. They can, many short trips are made by bicycle uh, or uh, other modes, and I feel like, you know, in many places we've just lost the choice. And if you talk about the congestion problem, I mean, people talk about population increase and the amount of new roads we're building, and, and over the same period, I think the population went up about 30%. What really jumped, I think, five times more than that was the number of vehicle miles traveled every year. So it's just, if we could just get back to where we were in the early 70s uh, as a nation, it would be sort of a step in the right direction, in, in my opinion. And we, you know, we sort of say, the old saw about places like the Netherlands is that, you know, well, that works there, but it can never happen here. And I was just in Portland, where I feel like, you know, it was becoming a little bit of a theme park for kind of uh, multimodal transportation. But um, I feel like people are almost now saying, you know, well, that might work in Portland, but it would never work here. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, 8% of daily trips in Portland are now on bike, and in the 1970s, there were, there were no bike trips in Portland, so it's not, it's not some sort of inherent love of Portlanders of a bicycle. It's that you know, facilities were provided, incentives were provided, a culture emerged that, you know, so, I mean, these things are all complex, and so, you know, in terms of cities, I think absolutely, as population continues to increase in cities, there's no way we're going to be able to accommodate more vehicles. We need... Uh, more shared vehicle schemes, I think, would be a better solution, the zip car, and then providing on-street parking for zip cars, you know, making incentives to actually use them, uh, which New York City doesn't do things like that. So, I mean, that would be, I, I guess I try to find some sort of uh, middle ground. I'm not, I'm not in favor of banning the car outright because I, I derive great utility from it myself, but, uh, you know, clearly it's, we've given over too much of our, especially urban streets, I think, and, uh, you know, the New York City Department of Transportation used to be called uh, the Department of Traffic, and, and some people sort of joke that the way the Department of Defense used to be called the War Department, that that was a little bit more of an honest kind of description of what their job was, which was to basically move as many vehicles as possible through New York City in as little time as possible, but now under a new commissioner there, you know, we've had a whole new regime thinking about, you know, so-called livable streets, shared streets, different, you know, BRT, bikes, different modes, because it's simply not, you know, you're not going to fit all those people in at the same time and without serious negative consequences. One more question, I think. Um, this was something that I found edifying in your book and that I enjoyed reading. Um, you had a couple examples of um, sort of looking at aggressive driving behavior and whether it pays off. And two things I'm thinking about specifically are parking in shopping centers and um, highway driving where you compare people who 
change lanes very aggressively and all that. Um, tell us what the results of those studies were. I mean, there have been a couple studies done that were two groups of drivers. One was said, obey all the laws, drive the speed limit, do not make as many lane changes as you need to. Other groups were sort of given the other brief. Right. And uh, over the course of a 60-minute you know, trip, the, the difference was fairly marginal. And there's just a randomness to traffic with whatever the light configuration is, whatever the congestion tends to be. And I think we've all experienced this on the highway when the other lane seems to be moving faster and we're often tempted to jump over into the other, other lane. But if you, if you just sort of stay your ground for a while, you may find yourself trading, trading positions with that same benchmark vehicle to your right the whole time. So um, this is something that, and uh, what was the second point? I'm sorry. Uh, the <laughs> cars in the parking, in the, is it better to circle and circle and look for a good space or just pull into the first space that you find? Yeah, now this, I, mean, I can't say this has been exhaustively studied state by state, but there was a, a guy, a former wildlife biologist, doing some work at a Walmart parking lot in Mississippi observing <laughs> parking behavior, which he compared to this thing called optimal foraging. How do animals look for food? What's the most efficient and effective way to find a resource? Uh, and he found that, indeed, People who sailed into the first spot they saw actually got into the store quicker than the people who were kind of looking for this quote-unquote best spot, which tended to be lined up with the store entrance. And you might argue that, particularly for women, there might be you know, a safety issue, a feeling of being, you want to be as close to the store as possible. But you know, this is something I find in transportation a lot that interested me is that we often, our, our sense of time is skewed and we're, often the savings is not as great as we think it is. And there's also all kinds of interesting um, misperceptions we have, such as, uh, we think, for, if you're in a large parking lot at a, a stadium, for example, and you're asked to walk from point A to point B, that seems shorter to you than the equivalent distance over some city streets where you have to sort of go like that. That second section seems longer, even though it's the same exact distance. It's just something about line of sight or... So there's... A, traffic, I think, plays with our, our minds in that way, in, in many ways, time and space. And, I'll pull into the first space. My driving behavior has been vindicated from a whole lifetime, so I feel better. But anyway, that's it. Um, let's hear it for Tom Vanderbilt. Thank you. And Thank we're going to take questions. Yes, we are. Hi, I'm Stephen Huey. Thank you for coming today. Uh, you addressed uh, different policies that could um, adapt the car to traffic currently, but what do you foresee the role of mass transit in the future as far as public transit? Admittedly not something I, I really got into. I mean, I felt that, you know, I, I really had to limit myself to just studying this one primary mode of, of transportation. Uh, so I, I, I almost feel like that is a bit uh, out of my realm in a way, and I'm not sure I can give a, I don't know, Eric, would you like to chime in with anything on that? Or <laughs> uh, it's a very large and complicated topic. Um, I think mass transit definitely has a role to play under the right circumstances, in the right type of city, in the right corridor. I think sometimes we get those uh, investments right, sometimes we get them less right. Um, I think transit has an important role to play as a social safety net for poorer people, especially in terms of providing good bus service. I don't see mass transit as a technology that's going to save us from traffic congestion. We live here in LA, we're on as aggressive a rail building program as one can basically possibly imagine. We've put up four light rail lines in the last 20 years, we're building another one right now, and we're starting to plan the subway to the sea, and congestion here is still terrible. Now, it may have been worse without those transit investments, but um, clearly tr uh, rail transit alone is not going to be the thing that helps us cure the congestion problem to the extent that a problem the problem needs curing. And I'll just chime in, though. There are interesting things that, that sort of, were, again, were news to me, just in what, what keeps people away from public transit in a place like New York City, which is you know, obviously so dependent upon it, and it's so much more the rational choice in some ways. And if you look at sort of interesting studies about Brooklyn Bridge, peak hour, morning commute, who's, who's in that traffic stream, uh, it was found that some 30% were actually municipal employees headed to free or subsidized parking spaces. Uh, so the, you know, they had this incentive. Another study found uh, you know, two neighborhoods, one in Queens, one in Brooklyn, very similar demographics in terms of wealth, very similar proximity to public transportation, yet one group seemed to be driving a lot more into, the cent into central Manhattan. What was the difference? It seemed to be the presence of a garage at, at their home. It was more or a guaranteed parking spot. So this is, I mean, incentives, I think, uh, do matter. None of these things happen in the absence of those. And my incentive uh, to, to not drive is, again, the, really the parking question. I mean, I, I, 
Yeah, downtown Los <laughs> Angeles, which is the hub of our sort of rail system, has tons of parking, and parking is available and affordable compared to Manhattan and San Francisco. And Donald Shoup has done research in which he's demonstrated that uh, a lot of the vitality of New York and San Francisco are because you can't park there. There's less parking, that means things can be denser, that means things can be livelier, that means people will take transit instead of driving. Um, the question is, can downtown San Francisco's and Manhattan's be replicated in downtown Houston and downtown Atlanta? And the jury is very much still out about that. Portland is sort of trying. They're, they're trying to make themselves a, a transit-oriented city with a lively downtown. And they've put caps on downtown parking to try to achieve that same thing to get people onto transit. Uh, Todd Kerner. I have an overriding principle I use when I drive on the freeways here in Los Angeles, which is if people are passing me on the right, I'm not far enough to the right. Do you have any advice to teach perhaps some of the younger drivers in Los Angeles that would help them drive better and help traffic move faster on the freeways here? Dear God, no, I don't think I do. But, um, uh, but you bring up an interesting point to me, which is this sort of the most common complaint I hear about driving in America is people driving slowly in the left lane. And this is, I find this is a dilemma in, in driving, which is this sort of has been described to be user optimal versus system optimal. And you get this, and the left lane is not quote unquote the fast lane, it's technically the passing lane. So you know, you should only be, you shouldn't be camping out in there. And someone's always going to want to go faster than the person in front of them. So is it optimally, optimal for the system to devote this one lane to this one slightly faster platoon of cars, which tends to push everyone out into these other lanes, which and every time a vehicle changes lanes, you sometimes get these ripple effects, and so I don't know. I think ideally, from what I've seen, you know, the, a highway handles the most volume at, at around. This keeps changing, but maybe around 60 miles an hour. If everyone were going the same speed, there was no lane changing. That would be sort of the system optimal thing. Yet it's you know during peak hours and, and things like that. But so again, the individual desire takes over and introduces all sorts of uh, problems. So I don't have any good advice for LA. I, I have a piece of advice. <laughs> Replace the humans with robots. And I don't mean it entirely facetiously. People are experimenting with replacing the humans with robots. And that gets you out of so many problems that are caused by having biological organisms driving cars. For example, you can space the cars so much more closely together if the cars communicate and this guy knows that this guy's about to slow down. And um, there are all sorts of other pro optical illusions that puzzle us when we're driving that you could get rid of with the automated control of your cars. I'm, I'm not holding my breath, but um, technologically it is feasible. They've driven platoons of cars down roads all perfectly synchronized with each other, but there's a lot of problems. Yeah, yeah, and there's a great, uh, I urge you all to look on YouTube, there's a great video, just type in something like self-generated traffic jam, and it shows a Japanese researchers got a closed track, circular group of vehicles, drive the same speed, keep the same following distance, and there were no, you know, no new vehicles coming on, there were no bottlenecks. They started to drive, and over, over time, because of sort of overreactions of braking and, and underreactions of accelerating, stop-and-go traffic emerged out of this circular system. Now, if, if these autonomous vehicles were there programmed, you could have an infinite, infinite circle. And I was in uh, Junior, who is Stanford University's uh, entry in the, the DARPA Urban Challenge, which is an autonomous vehicle race. Uh, I, was, I was lucky to be in this on 10th Avenue in New York City driving along and cr the most polite New York driver you've ever seen, you know, so obeyed every signal, could see every pedestrian. And the driver, you know, was, I got used to it after about two blocks, just being driven by the vehicle itself. Uh, My name is Ray. What would you say, think the implications would be if uh, state laws were changed so that no one under 18 could drive? You had to wait until you're, you were 18 to drive. What do you think, what would the implications be and what do you feel about um, uh, young, younger drivers in general? I think there'd be an immediate uh, decline in, in traffic fatalities. I mean, that this is the only successful, demonstrably successful teen driver safety improvement we've seen as a so-called graduating, graduated driver's licensing schemes, which restrict your exposure in the car, you know, of course, until you're 
18 or, you know, I got, there's, but this, the U.S., you know, we have a state-by-state -state policy. You can still get your license at age 14 in some states, which have this agricultural heritage, even if a place like Iowa, there really aren't that many family farms anymore, and these are just suburban kids driving to school at age 14. Um, so, you know, I, I've heard people argue we should basically raise the driving age to 21 and lower the drinking age to 18. That would provide a much greater uh, safety benefit. So, but, you know, this is another... Teens have come to depend on the car as part of their mobility as much as any other group. And, you know, I go back to my old neighborhood where I grew up and the high school, which had this kind of small parking lot that wasn't really that utilized except for the faculty and maybe a few sort of more well-off kids, is now there's extra parking in the sports fields and every kid is, is driving. So, uh, But, again, teens are the high-risk group. And um, it's a classic, they call it the young driver paradox. They need experience to become better drivers, but that experience is very deadly for them. So this, this GDL is sort of good. At, it's the right kind of exposure. It limits, obviously, groups of... Passengers are a life-saving device for other sorts of drivers. When you have passengers in your car, you're less likely to be involved in a crash, but for teens, it's the exact opposite relationship. The more passengers you have, uh, the more dangerous it becomes. So they, they try, try to limit stuff like that, but again, it depends on the parent involvement and parents monitoring, things like that. So. It's, more, again, one of those social questions more than... It would absolutely be a public health boon if we passed that law tomorrow, but what are the social implications? Hi, Mark Vermoot. Actually, my, my question goes back to something you were dis discussing before. I've noticed, probably because I'm not the right kind of driver, that when I go down the highway, it appears to be bunches of packs of cars, and then you can sort of break through and it's sort of free and it, when it's not highly congested in Southern California. So it feels like it moves in, like, particles not sort of a steady wave. Have they done studies on the physics behind that? Sort of, I guess, in line to the oval track experiment that you had mentioned. Yeah, I mean, well, a guy named Boris Kerner, for example, has a quite lengthy and technical textbook called The Physics of Traffic, which uh, if, if you have a scientific bent, I would recommend. I, I can't make heads or tail of a good portion of the book, unfortunately, and uh, for some reason the Germans also have a lock on, on that kind of stuff and uh, had the most theoretical discussions uh, in, in Germany on these sorts of things. But, I mean, yeah, there's a, all, people have used all sorts of different metaphors, water, gas, uh, granular, media, and, you know, and I, I, they're all useful up to a point, and they involve a lot of models, and models only get you so far, and I, I mentioned this in the book, but a great disclaimer I saw at a conference was at the bottom of the paper, this model does not account for the heterogeneity of driver behavior. And that, that's the th <laughs> sort of the thing you, you necessarily can't model. I mean, you can, you can try, but there's always going to be that unmodelable driver. Yeah, Tom, hi, my name is Jerry Champa. Thanks for writing the book. I work with traffic safety practitioners just about every day, so I have a lot of great material for your next book. More importantly, what I really want to ask you about is, and I know you, you mentioned this in the book, I'm not sure how much you talked about it, this statistic that attributes 90% of all collisions to the driver almost blames the driver for 90%. Do you see the, you may know the flaw in that statistic, do you see danger in promoting that in terms of the way we invest and the way we uh, improve our highway infrastructure? In other words, I, I think what I understand is the drivers are blamed because that's the way collisions are reported by police. They have to assign fault to somebody. So just your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, we all want to, I mean, you read these sort of stories in the newspaper, and there's a tendency to want to really uh, look for personal responsibility, and, the, and, the, and these, even the way accidents are reported, cra in crashes, I, I prefer that word, if, you know, like a lot of people in the industry, but um, even the way they're reported is certainly just sort of biased. Uh, there's certain stories that get reported more than others, which sort of shapes are, you know, when there's, when there's a drunk driver who kills someone, that story gets a lot, reported a lot more if a drunk, than if a drunk driver simply runs off the road and kills themselves, essentially. I mean, there's a, and then there's this tendency to want to call people idiots, essentially, and use this sort of, it's all driver responsibility. And that, you know, from a public health point of view, from, if you want to view this as like an epidemiological problem, how can we solve the problem? That's not very, obviously very constructive, because we all already suffer from an overconfidence bias as drivers. We all think we're better than the next person. So to then sort of castigate these people as idiots then just sort of increases our own sense of, you know, uh, kind of invulnerability. In, uh, in terms of the, uh, and I'm not sure I, I got the, does that answer what you were, were you talking more about the road environment yeah. or? Yeah, well, that's, but, but, that's the second part of this. But, and, and again, there's this, you know, thing called the Haddon matrix, which, you know, it's, it's never just one thing. It's not, you, you, 
with certain exceptions, but it, it's always uh, had in Matrix, you know, sort of like driver factors, vehicle factors, other sorts of road factors, and tries to, it, it's a relationship that comes together, and I think all of these need to be worked on. I think, I do think in the U.S. we've spent a lot of time and money working on the vehicle protection issues and making the road and engineering better, and we might be reaching a certain point of maturation with that where maybe it's time to go back to that so-called nut behind the wheel, which is what the car companies called the drivers in the 1950s and said, you know, we don't need to make our cars safer because it's, it's all about these, you know, stupid drivers behind the car, but, you know, the cars have gotten safer and obviously the driver behavior issues still loom large, such as, you know, distraction being uh, implicated in, in the majority of crashes and things like that. So, again, to go back to that Weber quote, it's, it's, it's always sort of more complicated than, than you think. This is Jeff. In I was just curious whether you thought that the Cash for Clunkers program, where you're accelerating the turning in of older vehicles for newer vehicles, would have any incidental effects on traffic congestion? Sounds more like a Freakonomics uh, <laughs> question to me. But, um, and I, Gosh, that's a good question. Um, I can't think of any way that it would offhand. Does anyone else have any idea? I mean, I, I, I was mean, thinking, at least for me, I see two competing things. I mean... You seem to drive more miles a year in a newer vehicle than in yeah, an older I, I, vehicle. But those newer vehicles are safer, but you might be less safe in them taking more... I don't know if you take more risks with a higher-valued vehicle than a lower-valued vehicle, but you don't know the equipment. So, again... Yeah, I mean, for, there was a study in Norway from a safety point of view, and there's some... This was a Norwegian study that found that new cars did crash at a higher rate than older cars, even when adjusted for the more miles that, that you put on. So they were speculating that maybe there was a, clearly if you're driving a you know, 2010 BMW with 20 airbags and all this stuff versus a 77 Yugo with, you know, uh, uh, you're probably going to behave differently at some fundamental level. But uh, in terms of congestion, I'm not sure. I mean, that, you, you would put on more miles, certainly. A lot, a lot of these were sort of third cars sitting around people's yards, right? That they you, sort of, you might also know. see a difference between, cra I mean, you have to keep crash rates and crash fatalities separate. I would tend to think that Newer cars might have lower crash rates, but, but lower fatality rates also because of the uh, superior safety features. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you.